Job de Vos, um, CEO at Mezzanine. Uh, Mezzanine is a Varicum subsidiary company based in South Africa. We're here to talk about uh, the Internet of Things and um, the trend that's building around that technology. Perhaps a good place to start is the beginning. <laughs> Where are some of the, what are some of the applications that IoT we you know that IoT is embedded um, that perhaps the average individual is not aware of? And then take us from that to the future um, that you are slowly building up the infrastructure to service in terms of IoT and what that looks like for the average person. Thank you. So I think the predecessor of IoT, most people would know as uh, M2M, which stands for machine to machine. And a typical use case will be what we refer to as a linear use case. So recording temperature, for a specific purpose. If we look at a healthcare example, recording temperature in an um, emergency blood fridge within a hospital and communicate the temperature to the technician responsible for that fridge to know when to come and service the fridge or if there's a power outage to come and make sure the backup power is, um, is in place. So that's a typical M2M setting. Now the difference between M2M and IoT is in IoT there's really no boundaries. So it's where the boundaries of existing industries are, are moving and merging with other industries. So let's look at transport and insurance. In the MTM setting, that would typically be serviced as two separate use cases, whereas in IoT, we combine the two and say, how do we use mobile or the IoT capability to allow transport services to move to a service model? So Uber model is enabled by IoT capability. In this case, very simple, the GPS in your phone recording location, telling the Uber driver exactly where you are and where you need to be picked up. So that's a very simple example of, on a day-to-day -day basis, people interacting with IoT capability without really knowing it. And then taking into the future, I think the use cases, there's really no limitation. I think this is why we refer to it as the fourth industrial revolution, um, is there's, there's explosion of opportunities across all industries. So again, as I said, the the existing industries as we know, or boundaries of industries as we know it will change. And as Vodacom, we and Mezzanine, we are only interested in how can we enable third-party service and solution providers to innovate and create the next Uber services for different verticals, in specifically in Africa. So let's talk about how Vodacom specifically is trying to um, participate in this trend. Uh, you mentioned Mezzanine, which is a company that has been acquired by Vodacom. Uh, tell us about what uh, Vodacom brought in, uh, brings to the table or has in mind in terms of absorbing Mezzanine into their infrastructure and what strategically the plan is to, to be part of this fourth uh, revolution, industrial revolution. Thanks. So, again, we as Vodacom are interested in, in the, the enabling capabilities, or we can refer to it as the building blocks. So, the, the most basic building block, of course, is communication, the, the, the ability to move data from point A to point B. The interest in Mezzanine is now to say, if I use the GSM channel as the enabler for what we refer to as value-added services, what are the other functions that's necessary? Security, identity management, transaction management, location-based services. So on top of just providing, being a communication provider, 
IoT supporting or IoT use case actually need a lot of additional value-added services. And these are the services that Vodacom hope to offer um, in, in future for, for different IoT use cases. And then just on the, on the monetization side, enabling new business models will also require ability to, to capture value, to monetize services. So the question is, how will you monetize a service like Uber in Africa if the average citizen don't have a credit card? So we're also interested in, together with managing the identity of the transaction, whether it's a human or a thing, and a thing can be anything, that translate analog into a digital signal. How do we monetize that service? And the monetization capability is something that we very specifically would like to offer as a as a service to third-party providers of IoT services and solutions. Uh, I'd imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, latching on or, or or buying in this sort of innovation to add to either the value proposition that a company like Vodacom makes is part of uh, almost repositioning to be more than just a, a mobile telco in the future. Would I be right in saying that? Yes, I think 100%. So it's the choice we need to make on whether to, to be a dump pipe for future um, use cases, whether we would be... Um, taking a share in what you referred to as over-the-top uh, uh, part of the service. And we definitely want to be playing in, in, in other than communication services, in information management, transaction management, identity management, and then what we refer to as, as decision support, which is uh, vertical or industry-specific. So let's talk about the infrastructure that puts you in a good position relative to newcomers uh, starting from scratch. I mean, you have existing infrastructure to sweat um, in as far as, you know, the, the mobile network that already exists. Um, you, you know, Vodacom and many other players have made headlines in terms of uh, their intent to, to grow infrastructure, specific, IoT-specific infrastructure that pri- didn't exist prior. Speak to some of the... the infrastructure, you know, legacy infrastructure and how that positions you to take advantage or to, to, to have, perhaps have a leg up on, on the competition and then talk about some of the newer plays in terms of infrastructure and where and how that's working or at least where that's going to roll out. The difference in approach would be to say that we don't necessarily see technology as a differentiator. Um, more more the business model. Um, so then the question should be, what would be different from a business model point of view um, in servicing IoT use cases in future? Now, the most important aspect, and that is why Mezzanine um, partnered with Vodacom, um, is, of course, trust. So if I put a SIM card in my car or in my fridge or in my microwave or... Um, in a video camera responsible for security at my work or at my home. Or in my baby's bathtub or the brick in my house. <laughs> exactly, you get the point. Trusting the service provider is important, not with respect to trusting the service provider with my data, but trusting the service provider to provide a, a reliable service. So from a service availability point of view, of course the reach and of the Vodacom network. Um, geographically in multiple countries in Africa, but also if you look at in-country, the, the population coverage um, of, of the Vodacom network, 
we feel confident that we can go out to clients and offer them a service level, offering a service availability. And that is important for any service provider uh, delivering an IoT capability because you will no longer pay for the device as a CapEx expenditure, for example. You will pay on outcome base. Um, so if the outcome is, 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 is positive, I pay for the service. If the outcome is not um, as expected, I don't pay for the service. So now my ability to monetize and make money as a service provider or a solution provider relies on Vodacom providing a trustworthy and reliable service. So I think going forward, we would like to position ourselves as the trusted partner um, in delivering IoT use cases or solutions and services uh, across Africa. That's, um, I guess, you flexing a little bit going, okay, so either trust us and everything we've done to help you have... Uh, amazing uh, mobile telephony all these years and trust us with this new thing or go with her Johnny come lately. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, but more than that, I think we also, in, not necessarily in South Africa, but if you look at the rest of Africa, the mobile money capability, so the investments uh, that Vodacom, Vodafone made in, in, in a mobile money service like Impesa or Safaricom, our sister company, um, the monetization component of an IoT proposition will rely on, uh, in, mo- in a lot of cases, a mobile money service uh, that need to be offered with a connectivity service. So I think what is what will differentiate the proposition is really the ability to deliver more than just connectivity, but tick all the boxes that you need as enablers in order to support the IoT solution and service. Now, if I'm in business, I can totally, particularly in the commodities business or perhaps logistics, like you mentioned earlier, I can totally see why I'd be ex- excited about this trend. I can see efficiencies being delivered in ways that, you know, uh, they've never done before. Um, but you must be aware of some of the, the, set, the well, the apprehensions that uh, citizens might have, global citizens, uh, citizens on the continent, about the implications on, on data privacy, um, the the massive hockey stick we're, we're going to start to see in terms of big data and how it's processed, cleaned, verified. Um, you talk about monetization. What's being set up to sort of p- police this trend to ensure that it, it benefits the man on the street and, and not just um, corporate entities and also that it isn't taken too far? And that's if you believe it could. I gave a lecture recently at a, at a South African university and I had a very similar question from the audience. My response was to say that at this stage, we don't even know what questions to ask. So I think we will misrepresent future industries if we try to answer these questions. But I think with respect to the questions that we do know exist, and the one you mentioned around data privacy, data ownership, data sovereignty, uh, these are things that we take very seriously. And in also, in being a thought leader within the space, uh, with Vodafone being ranked as the number one IoT service provider globally, these are some of the hard questions that we're asking. So as part of designing the enabling services that I referred to earlier, we are looking into the elements of data ownership. So if I collect data from your fridge um, and you pay for the service, who's the owner of the data? Is it Samsung, who's the manufacturer of the the, the fridge? Is it the, the subscriber or the client paying for the service or is it the service provider or is it all of the above? 
So can Samsung, Samsung use the data we collect from your fridge in developing a, a, a next generation product? Or will that be stealing data from the consumer? So I think these are the kind of things that we know, believe as part of the democratization of data and information will enable uh, players to develop new business models. So I think it's 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 uh, at this stage there's there's not even I think five to ten percent visibility on the kind of questions that will need to be answered. So let me just run on the example you just gave. I mean, we're fresh off um, Barclays Africa and other banks uh, being you know wrapped over the knuckles for for colluding around you know manipulating the rand you know and. To use the example you just used, Samsung could hypothetically use the information from the fridge to, to, to know that it's nearing the end of its life, aggregate that information across millions of people, um, and, and create a brand new product, price it in such a way to sort of guarantee you know, a certain you know, sort of profit or a certain margin, knowing full well that people won't have a choice because they, <laughs> their fridges will be dead very soon. I mean... Won't this redefine market manipulation on some level potentially? I mean, there are, and I, and I take your point in terms of like, we don't even know what questions to ask, but um, there are pretty scary questions you have to admit. No, sure. That's why I'm responding by saying that, that we don't know what questions will be asked. So it will be, yeah, we will misrepresent future industries in trying to answer these questions. But I wanted to finish just my previous point in saying that the position we take is quite a conservative one in saying that the client, in this case, in the Samsung fridge example, the consumer will remain the owner of the data, except if the service levels that you sign stay differently. But um, I think let's distinguish between free services like WhatsApp and Facebook and services that you pay for as a consumer or enterprise. Of course, there will be different service levels. And those service levels will state, of course, what can be done with the data and what can't be done with the data. But I think there's a lot of sensitivity around data linked link to humans um, and citizens and, and clients, consumers. Now the question is, okay, what sensitivities exist around collecting data from things? Because things will inform decision-making and will put service and solution providers in a favorable market position. So yes, can we move data between countries? Or does the same rules apply for in-country hosting of data or things that's collected by a service provider? These are the kind of questions that I believe need to be answered on a, on a broader level. So maybe referring to the Africa Union, in the case of Africa, European Union, um, ITU, I think they will probably guide us in, in, in the thinking around this. And then, of course, the, the growth of the sharing economy is not going to make that any easier because you say the sensitivity is around, you know, mostly data to do with individuals. But I can tell you that if I know my daughter's in, a, in an Uber on her way home, I care about the data that Uber's giving off too. And, and it's, you know, in context to, you know, my, <laughs> my child being in that car. So I'm sure it's going to get really complicated, don't you think? Yes, but I mean, maybe to put my all answered in a more straightforward way in the in the example of your daughter taking uber my hypothetical daughter of course your hypothetical daughter if your daughter is paying for the service she will decide what who's got access to the data if you pay for the service you will decide so i guess is daddy paying or is, is your daughter paying and maybe i need to decide whether i'm ubering in the first place <laughs> yeah i think let's just say that uh, in 
the boundaries of industries as we know them will change and will move and will merge and let's use the word collide. And there will be a lot of disruption. We believe in a positive way. How these industries will look like, we don't know. But what we know is that it will be enabled by a communication service provider. Um, we look at different technologies, but we believe we will play a central role in allowing Africa to take part in the fourth industrial revolution. So I think if we go back to the first, second, and third one, with steam, electricity, and let's call it the internet or microprocessing, in each of these cases, the, the individuals that participated in the invention of what disrupted or what is now termed as the Industrial Revolution completely underestimated the impact that it will have. Before the internet, before electricity, the individuals stated that they believe there's, there's not really a business case for, for electricity. There's not really a business case for the internet. There's not really a business case for a microcomputer. I believe IoT will be the same in saying that we have a very, very little understanding and like iceberg analogy, we can see the tip of the iceberg of what it will look like, but 90% of the value is below the surface and are yet to be discovered. So it's exciting times and we're very, yeah, we, we're very, um, we're also excited in, in being part of this. So speak to someone in business right now. We've, we've done a lot to, to sweat the issue in terms of maybe individual interest, citizen interest. Um, talk to someone who's listening to us right now who thinks, ah, oh, this is right over there. It doesn't really affect me. So perhaps you might want to use agriculture, for example, which I, I, I think might offer quite a, a great um, blank sheet for you to demonstrate how IoT um, might improve efficiencies and most importantly to the, to the business people listening to us right now, uh, improve yields in the case of agriculture and perhaps the bottom line? We see agriculture as one of our priority uh, um, verticals or industries in Africa. The, the reason being that uh, there's a estimated 500 million individuals or citizens in Africa that's a member of an agriculture household. So in the excess of 50 million um, uh, farms or uh, um, farmer households. And if we want to grow the African economy, agriculture is definitely at the center of that, contributing more than 30% of, of, of GDP. If you look at a contribution to employment um, in countries like Ethiopia, um, North, uh, West, East Africa, it goes up to 80%. Of course, in a country like South Africa, it's it's much lower. It's three to five percent, but growing the economy is agriculture is definitely one of the priority verticals. So, if we look at IoT, we don't only look at the technology component, but also at the advisory component to say we need to have an in-depth understanding of the agriculture value chain in Africa in order to really use IoT in. in in increasing quality, increasing yield of, of, of volumes, increasing access to information, increased access to markets, increased access to financial services. So as part of developing our IoT capability, we do work with partner organizations and uh, multinational and, and local in uh, getting an in-depth understanding of a specific industry. So you look at healthcare, you look at education, you look at transport, you look at security. And ag within agriculture, we believe that, that IoT will really allow 
um, the the smaller farmer in Africa to participate in the in the agriculture value chain. How? So currently, I mean, if you look at the agri value chain, the production component is less than twenty two percent, and that's really what the farmer is confined to. So if you look at the input supply component, there's no participation. If you look at the off-taking processing value-added component, there's no participation. The logistics, the retail component. So IoT will allow this, the the input service providers and the off-takers and the processors and the retailers to actually start to establish a relationship with the farmer. Um, today, Nestle has example by produce from more than 700,000 farmers. They don't know what the identities of those farmers are. They don't have any relationship with that farmer with respect to loyalty or understanding. IoT will allow us to, at a smaller farmer level, provide value-added services with respect to access to information, so what to plant, when, how to plant, land preparation, crop care, harvesting, where to deliver, how to store, how to reduce wastage. So, I mean, I can go on and on and on. So the three value drivers really to summarize in, in agri that we believe we will be able to enable, uh, we would be able to enable using the IoT capabilities, access to information, access to markets, and access to financial services. And having access to financial services maybe as the number one priority because each and every bank today will tell a smaller farmer, I can't provide credit to a smaller farmer because the farmer can't provide land as a collateral. So typical farmer farm on communal land. Um, in other words, there's no way for the farmer to buy quality input supplies because the farmer doesn't have access to credit. Now, the IoT capability will allow us to, del- to support the input su- supplier. Let's use a seed company like Seedco in Kenya or Monsanto, which is maybe a better known organization in the, in, in the States, to deliver a bag of seed to the farmer because the transaction cost of doing that is low enough. So if I serve as a commercial farmer in the States, the farmer buy a 1,000 bags from me. So the transaction cost with that one farmer, I get to sell a 1,000 bags of seed. Whereas for the smaller farmer, on average farm on less than two acres or two hectares per farmer. So my transaction is half a bag of seed or one bag of seed. And the cost to distribute and to the farm gate is very high. So we use a range of capabilities from monitoring weather services, so having local weather forecasting, be able to provide uh, support information for a specific crop type, so knowing in profiling the farmer, knowing exactly what the farmer is farming with, where the farmer is farming. With that information, we can now allow the input suppliers to provide a farmer-centric service and the off-takers to aggregate the off-take, reduce wastage, and, and, and drive optimization and efficiencies. So let me think for the little guy for, uh, for one second again. Uh, th- there's already a sort of power differential between a two-hectare farmer in, in rural East Africa and, say, a massive company like Monsanto or Seedco or something like that. Um, I can totally see how having extremely you know, in-depth data on that little farmer is good for business for the big guy. But I, and maybe you agree, I, I would hope that you know, we get data protection law in place 
to make sure that the little guy is being protected um, from potential misuse or, you know, being taken advantage of. Because, I mean, the more you know, surely, the more you know, the better you operate. I mean, there's reasons we don't have cameras in Vodacom's boardrooms, for example. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel that perhaps there's a, there's a danger that we have that we haven't thought about. And I don't know whether, um, you know, the, the farmer in question is in a position to even understand what's at stake. Should they sign a document saying, go ahead, take my data? Um, Look, I mean, there's considerable upside, I have, to, I have to admit. I mean, perhaps as a farmer, I'm getting, I'm getting to market faster. I, I'm sort of able to track my, my yield. I can sort of, you know, my, my, my overheads in general in terms of just marketing my product and getting it out there. Certainly, there are benefits, but I can also see setbacks in, 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 in potential for abuse. And let's face it, I mean, the likes of Monsanto aren't here for our health necessarily. I mean, they're here for their shareholders first. Yes, uh, I think any use case, um, there's a potential downside. And that is why we would, I mean, as I said earlier, from an ownership, data ownership point of view, um, authentication authorization, who's authorized to access what, we, our position is a very conservative one in saying the consumer, in this case the farmer, remains the owner of the data. But should Barclays provide credit to that farmer in order to buy quality input supplies and that allow Coca-Cola to buy the produce delivered by the farmer and reduce wastage with 50%, the income of the farmer are doubled within 12 months. So... I mean, if there's no benefit for the farmer in participating in the service, then the farmer won't participate. So, I mean, look at the Uber model. Who's benefiting? Is it the Uber shareholders or is it average citizens that want to move from point A to point B? If there's no benefit, I will not consume the service. So I think, I mean, we believe we're the enabler. In other words, we won't own the end-to-end -end use cases as, as a service. It will be owned by a John Deere or a Unilever or a Nestle. Um, we will enable them to actually do business with smaller farmers. So we will de-risk the business model of buying from smaller farmers or providing input supplies to smaller farmers. And if you look at the, 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 the track record, unfortunately, it's not very good in, in sub-Saharan Africa. The global, on a regional level, all regions increased year-on-year -year, um, uh, yield and quality. For the last 30 years, we've been stagnant. No growth, no quality growth, no volume growth in Africa. We are a net importer of food. So from a food security point of view, from a job creation point of view, we believe there will be multitude of new capabilities offered to these farmers that is enabled by IoT capability. So finally, uh, it must be quite interesting to be um, at Vodacom at this point in time. In fact, it's probably an interesting time to be to be doing, uh, to be studying towards an MBA <laughs> in some respect, because um, analyzing markets and break, breaking down case studies of successful entities, uh, doing SWOT analyses, and is becoming quite a thing because who's, no one's sticking in their lanes. I mean, everything you've just described uh, puts Vodacom up against everyone from SAP to, to IBM to, uh, I don't know, to even MasterCard, for example, in terms of, uh, in terms of market overlap and in terms of like, the overlap of the opportunities, what sort of conversations are you having about who your competition is in this space, um, who uh, 
um, is a potential um, target for collaboration, uh, who you might acquire, uh, what skills you might need in order to to dominate. Is domination necessary? Are the conversations changing from a desire to have market leadership or own um, a a massive uh, share of the market? Uh, Are they changing to perhaps being an inextricable part of the ecosystem in some way or shape or form that would be friendly with everybody. And I'm, I'm speaking to someone who's clearly part of something that's not traditionally what we'd expect from a Vodacom, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, look, I'm not a Vodacom employee, so I mean, I can't represent them in, in responding to this question, but I mean, I can give you a personal opinion. Um, um, personally, my background is... is um, electrical, electronic, engineering, computer science. And when I attended my first class in my first year, the lecturer started the, the, the lecture by making the following statement. He said that f- 50% of you today in the classroom will be in a job in 10 years' time that doesn't exist today. I would like to, to follow up on that and say that you can go to 60 70% of of the services and solutions um, that companies will deliver and support and enable in 10 years' time doesn't exist today. So is it the exciting time? It's very exciting. Um, are there clear boundaries and lanes in, uh, in which we will run? No. I think uh, the, the rules of the game will change in, in many regards. But as in Abler, I mean, we do do see a very bright future for Africa. And we hope and we believe that Africa will be able to participate in the fourth industrial revolution. Because we have not participated in the first three. Uh, it's only with mobile as a sub, let's say a subset of the microprocessing and internet revolution that we've started to participate. So with mobile as enabler, we believe we will participate in the IoT uh, um, or the fourth industrial revolution. And and that is very exciting just to be part of that that journey. Um, and, and we don't see it as a destination, at least from my point of view. It's a journey and and it's 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 an amazing journey. And we're very excited to work with partner companies in delivering new services and new solutions. So what's brought us here? And by that, I mean, you've made reference to the fourth industrial revolution. Um, uh, speak to us about what's, uh, what's allowed us to have this conversation and as far as um, Internet of Things and, and, and related technologies. Yeah, thanks. I think there's a, there's a couple of things. So in the reference to, let's refer to the IoT or technology value chain, there's a couple of elements, but I think two key components the one is if you look at the mobile phone that you use, your iPhone or your Samsung, it's quite power hungry. Each night you need to charge your phone. So, I mean, the days of a Nokia 3310 of going for a whole week without without recharging the device. So the the ability to, to capture record data on, on a machine or device or thing level using a low-power device or transducer is one key enabler and then on the network side the ability to take the data from the thing or from the device to a base station to the cloud consuming very little power so a low power network capability so those are the two key enablers that will allow us 
to service all the range of new use cases. So basically technologies had to come to a certain place for these things to be possible. Yes, um, if, if you look at a coin cell battery that's in your watch, so how long can you, can you run your phone on a coin cell battery? Maybe a couple of minutes. With a low power IoT capability, you will be able to collect data for 10 years from a thing, let's say your fridge or your, your, your microwave or your car. So very low power, low bandwidth, but with this ability, we can support a whole range of new use cases. Within M2M, it's, it's inter-industry, so it's siloed, it's linear. IoT is interdisciplinary, inter-vertical, inter-sector, um, and it's non-linear. So in saying there's no boundaries, it means you are you can define the boundaries of the service you will deliver and it will consume a range of enabling capabilities, identity management, security, communication services, information management service, transaction management capabilities. And and all use IoT use cases will not consume all let's call it the building blocks, if we think in the term of Lego building blocks, each use case will get to select what building blocks is required in order to support a specific service. So to put a technical boundary to IoT is, is not something that we're comfortable to do today because it can encompass anything, anything that basically works with zeros and ones and uh, can potentially form part of an IoT use case. Now back to something you said earlier that we we might then look to be led by the African Union or in the case of Europe, the European Union. How are we supposed to then prepare for this future if it's so open-ended? No, I think that's why we want, we're very keen to, to look at a partnership model because the innovation will happen in garages. It will happen in in startup companies. It will happen on university campuses. It will happen within school uh, a school setting, a secondary school setting. Um, it will happen in multinational organizations. Um, Should the revolution be regulated? So I think if you, on a very high level, compare the approach, the typical approach, comparing the European Union versus the US approach. In the US, they will allow the innovators to innovate, and once they run into issues, then they'll look at the regulatory elements. Whereas in the European Union, you'll first try to say, my theoretical understanding of the problem is X, Y, and Z, and this is the regulations I put in place. But in doing that, you just inhibit the, 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 the progress and the velocity at which, at which uh, we, we can advance. So if you look at mobile money in Africa, we've started to regulate mobile money uh, once we've realized that it actually will go mainstream. Whereas... The other approach would be to say our theoretical understanding of mobile money um, is as follow and we will put regulations in place in order to manage that. I believe because we can't draw the boundaries, it's impossible to sit today and say this is the regulations for IoT use case. We will allow, in my view, a free market innovation and as we, as the industry generate new services, new solutions, start to service new use cases, we'll get to answer the questions around um, how to manage it. 
I have to take that with a pinch of salt, given how Safari Com is a sister company of yours, as well as uh, some of the things we discussed. But I thank you very much for speaking to me. It's been rather enlightening. I feel like we're only scratching the surfaces of this issue, but we'll continue to interrogate it. Uh, Jacques DeVos, thank you so much for speaking to us uh, on the African Tech Roundup. Thank you.